Our Old Testament reading is from Isaiah chapter 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. And although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death, was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. Our New Testament reading will be taken from John. John chapter 19, begin in verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law. According to that law, he ought to, be, ought to die because he's made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you'd have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was a day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. 
He said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So we delivered him over to them to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We've been making our way through the gospels, taking Matthew's, um, one account of Matthew's final, uh, of the final week of Jesus' life. We turned last week to the gospel of Mark. And now we turn to John for this weekend. And tonight we consider um, the trial of Jesus and we ask the question um, asked by Lucy uh, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, what does it all mean? What is the reason for this? What is the meaning of this? Is this simply another crucified Messiah? Is this just another um, of millions crucified by the Romans um, in their empire of peace taking over the world or is something different? Why is it that we gather tonight? That we don't gather um, for any other um, so-called Messiah. We don't gather um, in the name of any other Jewish leader who claimed to be the one bringing the redemption of God, of which we know of um, uh, approximately 90 um, within the 200 years surrounding um, Jesus' own ministry, all coming and all claiming that they themselves were bringing peace. So why do we gather this night and honor this one? Part of it has to do with Easter morning. But tonight, I want us to consider the meaning of the death of Jesus. John does a marvelous job of laying it out for us, but I want to give us kind of a broad overview of the Gospel of John before we look closely um, at um, Jesus' interactions with Pilate and Pilate's own words um, as John reports them for us. Um, The first is is that John begins in chapter 1, verse 1, in a very, very similar way to what Matthew did, if you'll remember back a few weeks ago. And we talked about how Matthew begins with these references back to Genesis um, and the creation narrative. Um, John begins in the exact same place, um, um, repeating the very words of Genesis 1-1, in the beginning. Only John says now, in the beginning was the word. There are actually a number of similarities between John's gospel and Matthew's. If you remember, we talked about Matthew made reference to, um, essentially took um, the story of Jesus and retold us the story of Israel. I'm talking about the promises of God given to Abraham and how Jesus comes as the fulfillment of those promises. Um, the, the Matthew's gospel is distinctly Jewish in its tone, it's in, in the way that it reports um, what's happening in the story of Jesus. Um, uh, saying things, making reference to things um, that only a first century Jew um, would know what's going on. Um, John um, uses uh, the, the creation narrative in, in chapter one, but he also... Um, takes up the the various feast days and festivals um, of the Jewish people, celebrating the redemptive acts of God. Um, John builds his entire gospel uh, around those feast days, um, pointing us again and again that that there is something glorious happening as Jesus comes to fulfill all of these feast days for the Jews. But John's doing something slightly different than Matthew. Matthew wants Israel to see in Jesus their own story fulfilled. John wants all of humanity to see in the story of Jesus the meaning of their own lives, the meaning of the history of the world. 
You see, John is constantly taking these Jewish festivals, um, taking uh, the the story of Jesus and lifting our gaze to consider, um, as we ask the question, who is this man? Who is this God-man? Who is this king? Um, Not merely to ask questions about promises and prophecies from the Old Testament, but rather to lift our gaze and discover that God is, in fact, redeeming the whole world. That in the coming of Jesus is not merely a, 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 a small um, Jewish religious fulfillment, but rather um, in the coming of Jesus is the fulfillment of the very meaning of what it means to be human. It's the fulfillment of, of God himself coming to dwell with man. This is, explains a number of different things in John's gospel. One of them, um, John, unlike the other gospel accounts, um, places Jesus, if you remember, um, going into the temple and cleansing the temple. He doesn't put that at the end of Jesus' ministry as the other gospel writers do. He puts it right up front. I think it's because he's telling the story of humanity. Humanity is kicked out of their temple right off the bat. We don't get to Genesis chapter 3 until we're removed from the presence of God. We're removed from the place of worship, of communion. So John, in retelling our story, in the story of Jesus, um, puts our fall, our sin, the problem in the garden, the very beginning of his telling. And so when we come to John's gospel, he wants us to see that this is God. And that God is doing something Stunning and shocking and mysterious. So we look at Jesus, we behold the God of the universe taking on the identity, taking on the covenant identity of the people of God. And so we begin with three phrases that John uses. And the first two from the trial that we just read about, and the last one will be from John chapter, we'll go back all the way to John chapter one to see how these line up. All three of them begin with a command. A command that, that John, um, through, through the mouth of Pilate, and then um, through the mouth eventually of John the Baptist, um, is commanding us to behold, to see, to look at. Um, John doesn't want to just blow us to blow through the scene that's unfolding in front of us. He wants to stop and consider and look at, to pause take a moment to see the scene in front of us. This is um, typical for John. Every, everywhere John writes, whether it's John's gospel or John's epistles or in the book of Revelation itself, um, he wants us to see and behold Christ. To see him exactly as John is, is painting him and portraying him for us. And so even as he calls us to behold the man, to behold the king and to behold the lamb, he gives us a, a vivid visual description of Jesus around all three of these. Let's begin with the first. In verse five, so Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, behold the man. It's important to note that Jesus has just been beaten, bloodied, mocked, spit upon, whipped, Whipped with a whip that had stones and pieces of bone sewn into it. So when you consider this king, John commends us to look at, that Pilate commands us to look at. You're looking at a man who's near death. A man who's on his way to death. A man who's would be in light of these beatings almost unrecognizable as a man. 
a purple robe, a makeshift royal robe has been placed around his shoulders. A crown, interestingly, a crown of thorns placed upon his head. Throughout the scriptures, throughout the Old Testament, a sign of God's judgment, presence of thorns, a sign of fruitlessness, thorns. That a sign that God would restore his people, used again over and over again in the prophets, um, is that the thorns, the thorns that had come with God's judgment, the thorns of fruitlessness um, that had come through their rebellion against God, their worship of idols, their abandonment of God's law, that those thorns would be turned into fruitful vines. So as we behold this king, sorry, as we behold this man, we see a king. Not the king we think. We see a makeshift royal robe. We see a crown of misery and judgment. We see Jesus beaten, lashed, mocked, and bloody. So what would John have us see? Behold the man. Behold mankind. Fruitless under judgment, beaten and on our way to death, knowing only the judgment of God, with a presumed royal robe around our shoulders. John would have us see ourselves. He would have us see humanity as it actually is. Despite all of our pomp, despite all of our self-importance, despite all of our secular thinking that we are gods, that we are kings, that we can defeat death, um, that we can undo sin and evil and injustice, um, despite all of our claims um, to be gods on this earth, all we have is a makeshift purple robe, crown of misery, and a limping journey towards death. See, when Jesus stands before us, as Pilate commends us to see and to behold this man, what John presents to us is humanity in our sin, humanity under the judgment of God, humanity who very, um, almost from the very, very beginning, we don't even make it to Genesis chapter four um, before we've um, presumed to call ourselves God, to say we will be like God, we will stand in the place of God, we will presume to know and to define for ourselves um, what is good and what is evil, what is true and what is beautiful. We will not receive a word from the Lord. We will not submit to the Lord. We will not worship the Lord. We will not give thanks to the Lord. We will not glorify the Lord. No, we will be our own gods, our own kings. Place ourselves at the center so we find ourselves as a humanity haunted, chased by the specter of death. For death is our judgment. Death is God's judgment. And here in Jesus, we find a terribly embarrassing bit of Christian theology. That sin 
deserves God's judgment. That a holy God, a righteous God, a good God looks out at all of us and condemns us. That our sins are not small. They are worthy of an eternal punishment. They stand against an infinite, holy, and eternal God. And so we find all of us, find all our society finds itself on the way to death. So we find ourselves immersed in a humanity haunted by their own death, haunted by their own shame, haunted by their own guilt. And it is a terrible thing to live among people who know they deserve to die, to know that they are going to die, to know that they've been promised to die. A people scrambling. Um, rather than turning to the God um, against whom they have sinned, uh, a mob making up myths to find comfort in. Atheistic myths where there is no God and nothing after death. Myths that deny the reality of guilt itself, transforming it into a psychological problem that lives in your head called shame. Myths that seek to remake God into something more palatable and less hard and big and holy. Less cosmic king and judge and more buddy, comforter, friend. And I would plead with you, do not make this an abstraction. Do not make this some um, notion that, that, yeah, we've all done bad things. Yeah, we've all done things that we're ashamed of. But don't abstract this to the level of um, uh, merely looking around and kind of comparing yourselves to other human beings. Like, um, well, those people that they're really bad or Hitler, he always, for some reason, becomes the standard of evil and over against Hitler. Well, most of you probably aren't that bad, probably. Um, like, so so we, we, we tend to take um, the standard. We can't stand in the light of the holiness of God. And so rather than um, standing in that light, rather than examining our lives in the light of the holiness of God and the law of God, um, we simply look left and right and presume to be a little bit more righteous than that person or a little bit more righteous um, than those people, a little bit more righteous um, than um, uh, pick, pick it, the people from from that state, people of that political persuasion, um, people who um, drink this kind of drink, people who watch these kinds of movies, whatever the standard is, um, we, we, we lower the standard and compare ourselves to others. Desperate to escape the guilt and the shame that belongs to us. Behold the man. Look at him. The sin that we behold Jesus clothed in. It's not an abstraction. It's not a mere sense that someone somewhere did something wrong. It is guilt that is attached to you. To your attitudes, to your words, to your lusts, to your pride. To your constant reorienting the world to place you and your emotions and your feelings and your desires at the center. It's your neglect of your children. It's your ire towards your parents. It's your self-righteousness 
in the face of almost any other sin than the one you struggle with. Behold the man. Here is Christ. Here is God. Here's the shocking thing about this night. Here is God clothed in our sins. Now drop down with me to verse 13. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the stone pavement in Aramaic Gabbatha. He really wants us to know where this is. He also really wants to know, us to know when it is. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover and it was about the sixth hour. So another bit of information about John. It's going to come up again on Sunday as we consider his account of the resurrection. Um, John doesn't give us lots of details. If you go to Luke, Luke gives all the details all the time. Tells you everything. He wants you to know when this took place and where this took place and how this happened and where Jesus was going and what was going on. John doesn't tell stories that way. John moves from image to image to image to image to image. So when he stops and says, we were here and it was this time, he's telling you something more than merely it was here at this time. In other words, there's, um, there's part of the imagery that you're supposed to behold and to see is contained in the details that John is, is intentionally including. In other words, he wants you to get a fuller picture of what's actually unfolding at this moment. And he can't just describe the image. He actually, for you to understand the image, you have to know what time it is and you have to know where everybody was standing. So John tells us that it was at the stone pavement, in Aramaic Gabbatha. The Romans knew that they couldn't take over the temple But they also knew that if there was ever going to be an insurrection, if there was ever going to be an armed rebellion uh, against Roman rule in Jerusalem, um, that they knew exactly where it would start. It would start in the temple. They also knew that if it would start, it would start in the temple and it would probably start during Passover. As Passover was the time when the Jews remembered the time that God came and rescued them and redeemed them from slavery in Egypt, conquering the Egyptian gods and liberating them as a people. So the the whole holiday, the whole feast um, is just shot through with revolutionary imagery. Um, And so rather than taking over the temple and destroying the temple, um, they did something the second best right next to the temple, in fact, towering over the temple, um, they built uh, their barracks. They built kind of a, a place for Pilate to be or whoever's, um, the, whatever Roman ruler was represented at the time um, and a barracks for their soldiers right next door. So if anything broke out and multiple times during this time period, things would break out, the Roman soldiers, in fact, um, uh, most scholars think it was probably uh, either two years before this, this is taking place or three years before this is taking place, um, there was a, a rather large insurrection, an armed one, that broke out in the temple. And the Roman soldiers simply rolled out of this giant tower, um, came out, they saw it kind of starting to break out and get organized in the temple courts. They came out, slaughtered the Jews um, that, that were armed and were standing against 
Rome. And so you have to picture this temple, this giant temple, this glorious temple courts, um, somewhere between 50 and 100,000 people in the temple courts. Um, This is the day of preparation for the Passover, which means this is the day that everybody goes to the temple. Where is this Gabbatha, this stone pavement, this place, this seat of judgment? Well, it sits on the roof of the tower overlooking the temple courts. John wants you to know where they're standing. He wants you to know that it's the day of preparation for the Passover. So there's lots of people in the temple courts. Now, what are they all doing? They're preparing for the Passover. In Jewish tradition, once a year you would go to Jerusalem for Passover. And went to Jerusalem for Passover, on the day of preparation for Passover, you would bring the lamb, the lamb that you're going to eat on Passover. You'd bring that lamb at the sixth hour, which is noon, and you would kill your lamb. The Passover lamb, what's that all about? If you know the story of, G, of, of the Exodus, last night of the plagues, God comes in judgment. He comes bringing death, striking down all of the firstborn. And he commands Israel that this night, judgment is going to come against the land. Um, and, and, and to avoid that judgment, um, they must slaughter a lamb. They must take the blood of that lamb, place it Um, on the doorposts of their house. And then tonight they gather, prepared to leave, prepared to be liberated, prepared to be set free, but the blood must stand over the door. It must stand over this home. So the judgment won't come into this home, won't come upon this home, so that death won't come here. So every year, remembering the mercy of God, to pass over their sins. They gather in Jerusalem. They gather on the day of preparation for Passover. They gather in the temple courts and they slaughter their lambs at the sixth hour. Now John is telling us to look. He wants us to see. So Pilate takes his seat Overlooking the temple courts, seat of judgment. Jesus stands before him in a purple robe and a crown of thorns. Below them, thousands upon thousands of lambs. And at the sixth hour, the screaming of the lambs and the judgment of Pilate against Jesus. Do you see? Behold your king. And so here is humanity condemned before God, presuming upon its own royalty, a fruitless royalty, a fruitless righteousness, a fruitless glory. And here is Jesus 
the lamb that was slain, covering over our sins that the wrath of God might pass over us. Which then brings us all the way back to the front of John. If you have your Bible, I pray that you turn it to John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, this is John the Baptist. He saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John told us what to see in the very first chapter. Oh, take note of your sin. Take note of death. And then behold the man. Oh, tremble the judgment promised to all those who rebel against our God. Tremble at all of the ways that you have presumed to be king or presumed to be holy or presumed to be righteous or presumed to be good. To presume to rule your own life. And then behold your king. And on account of your sin, the judgment promised, which is a death that goes on forever and ever and ever. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let's pray. So Father, we come. Just just as the, the Jews were commanded to eat the flesh, to eat the flesh of the Passover lamb, that in your kindness and mercy, not only did you provide a way for their sins to be passed over, for their sins to be forgiven, for their sins to not be counted against them and that they would be liberated from the idols of Egypt, so also you fed them. You gave them the flesh of the lamb. You gave them wine to drink and so also we come. We come needing a Passover lamb. We come needing a new king. We, need, we come needing a man who will stand for us. Who will stand in our place. So we come again to this table. Having received your mercy, clinging to your mercy, hoping in your mercy, finding our identity in your mercy, um, clamoring to confess and to sing and to declare um, that Jesus is king, that he is Lord. And you feed us. Feed us from his body and his blood. In your name we pray, amen.